All right. Um, I appreciate what you guys have been uh, studying the past few weeks. That there's a reason why we believe what we say we believe, uh, other than simply uh, because we've been told to do that. I was um, I was a youth minister for 20 years, so I really feel extraordinarily comfortable being in this room. Normally, I just speak to adults now, which makes me very nervous because they listen. And I'm I, 20 years taught me to be very comfortable with people not necessarily paying close attention. So tonight we're going to follow up with what you guys have been already studying. And you're going to understand why I think that this is um, an extremely important thing that y'all are doing. And not a lot of churches are sort of doing it. Um, Y'all give me a hand. What is that? A hotel lobby. It's a bar. Um, it's It's in Europe. But what else does it remind you of? Yeah, it's a church. Uh, It's a church. And in Europe, in England specifically, less than 10% of the people go to any church anywhere. Keep in mind that our faith, our Christianity, all stems from Europe. It all stems from England. And now... They have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches that are now restaurants and bars and warehouses and apartment buildings because no one's attending. And what we're seeing happening in Europe is about to happen at a church near you because you guys, your generation and the generation just before you are no longer attending any type of church. You may have noticed that. I don't know, but y'all are in Georgetown, Texas. It doesn't get closer to the buckle of the Bible belt than Georgetown, Texas. And yet, at your school, you may be in a minority if you go to church. And that was not the case 15 years ago. That was not the case when I was doing youth ministry. But it's true today. And so, what you guys have been studying is very important. They're used to, when I was a youth guy, the thought was, you know, when you leave church, those of you that are like in here because you're sort of active in what you're doing, when you leave, 70% of you would not go to church while you were in college. But we all knew that about 70% of that 70%, when they have kids, when they get married, when they get a little older, they're going to come back. Now we know of the active kids in church, active, y'all, you guys in this room are going to leave when you graduate high school and 70% of you will never come back. And that is a relatively scary thing. Here's why I think this is going on. At least this is what the studies are showing us. Zacchaeus, what, what was Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. We know that. We've done a really good job in church at teaching about Bible facts. Most of us know who Judas was. Most of us know what happened, uh, you know, during the last Lord's Supper with Jesus. Most of us know those things. Most of us, you know, know about the miracles of Jesus. We've done a really good job 
for the past few generations of teaching young believers what the Bible says. What we've done an extraordinarily poor job of doing is trying to tell you guys why you should believe it. Because the United States is no longer a Christian nation. And y'all know that, right? I mean, it's officially no longer a Christian nation. More people identify as non-Christian than Christian in the United States today. Y'all are growing up in an environment that has never existed before for believers on this continent. You go out every day into a non-Christian environment. In the United States, your parents didn't, your grandparents didn't, except four and five and six generations. Y'all are the first ever. And may I say, I'm sorry, because it was my generation that did this to you. We're the ones that dropped the ball. So in the church today, we've got, and in our families too, we've got to start understanding why we believe what we say we believe. It's critical. I was a junior in high school, and we were in some study hall, and we were talking about whether it's okay to have sex before you get married, and because what else do you talk about uh, in study hall? And so I was saying... Well, yeah, of course it's wrong because the Bible says it's wrong. And I remember this guy's name is Steve. And he went, well, I don't believe the Bible, so what else you got? And the sad thing was I didn't have anything else. That was it. That was the only club in my bag. That was the only arrow in my quiver. I had nowhere else to go. When he said he didn't believe the Bible, I was just, I didn't know. I didn't know what else to say. And I vowed that would never happen to me again. Some of you guys have been already challenged about what you say you believe. Some of you guys, even in junior high, there have been people that have challenged you that, you know, that, you know, that Jesus never existed. Or, uh, you know, the Bible was written 2,000 years ago. How in the world can you think it's still true? And I love it that Brett and David, these guys, were talking about a case for why we believe. Um, real quickly, um, the word is apologetics, and y'all have talked about that already, right? Right? And so that word means what? Yeah, the history or science behind. Basically, reasons. Apologetics is really a defense of the faith. It's not going out and sharing your faith. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Apologetics is a defense of the faith. And this goes back, I don't know, like a couple of thousand years. Peter said this in 1 Peter 3.15. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. 2,000 years ago, the apostle Peter knew that we needed to be able to give a defense for what we believe. There was the longest time, like when I grew up, that you didn't have to give a defense for what you believed. You just sort of believed it, and everyone believed it. And if you didn't believe it, you were a horrible person, and you just kind of went on down the road. But now there's a reason for us to defend what we believe. Every denomination in America is sucking wind. They are sinking like an iron ship. Uh, Baptist and Methodist and Church of Christ and Catholic, you name it, they're all losing numbers. The attendance is down. 
baptisms are down, people professing their faith is down, numbers are down in every denomination. I don't believe these guys are a Christian denomination, but there's one church that's not losing numbers. You know who it is? Who it? The Spaghetti Monster? No. It's not them. They're probably gaining. Westboro Baptist, bless them. Bless their little hearts. No, it's not them. It's Mormons. And as I told you, I'm not necessarily, I'm not in the camp that Mormons are, are Christians in the sense that we believe biblical Christians. However, they're not losing numbers. Do you know why they're not losing numbers? Because from when they're little bitty, they're taught. Now, people are going to tell you that the prophet Joseph Smith did this or said this, and this is what you say. From the earliest times, they're not only taught what they believe, they're taught how, why to believe it and how you can give a defense for what you say you believe. So when you get challenged, you don't just stare at them like a calf looks at a new gate. If someone said to you, well, which creation story do you believe in Genesis? Is it the one where men are created first and then man helps God name all the other animals? Or do you believe in the creation story that says man was created last, the crowning creation of God's creation? Which one? And most of us will look at them like you're looking at me. I had no idea there were two creation stories. We can get challenged on what we say we believe, and if we've never looked at it, if we've never considered it, we can just stare at people as though there is no answer to these things. Real quickly, um, most of you guys, if I said, why do you believe what you say you believe? Most of you would say, I believe it because it's in the what? It's in the Bible, which is why it's called God's word and not God's pancreas, because that's how he speaks to us. It's his word. And so we say we believe what we say we believe because it's in the Bible. You know, God's word says it. But then we come to this, where I was stuck when I was a junior in high school. But why is it that you believe the Bible? And that's why most of us, this is the point where most of us get stuck. And I love it that you've been studying ways of understanding why you believe the Bible. Because if someone said, why do you believe the Bible? Because, and not the Koran. The Koran's a holy book. The Koran's considered the word of God. What makes your Bible better than the Koran? What makes your Bible better than the Book of Mormon? What makes your Bible better than the writings of Confucius? Or the Hindu scriptures? What makes yours any different? Unless we are able to give some sort of an answer to that, the seed of doubt is planted in our minds and you become part of that 70% to wave goodbye and never to be seen again unless we try to understand why we believe the Bible to begin with. There's a difference between blind faith and a reasonable faith. Um, if you believe, and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm jumping out here and I realize that I may hurt some people's feelings, Santa Claus isn't real. Okay. And I know, I know I risk this by telling you this. But I need to be, and I may be the one to have to break it to you, but Santa Claus is not real. Now, if you're sitting here 
and you do believe that Santa Claus is real, that would be a blind faith. There would be no reason to believe that. My nephew, Ryan, when he was little bitty, he was about four or five years old, they were in the frozen food at Kroger's or something, and he went up to my sister and he said, Mom, you're a Christian, right, so you can't lie. And she went, uh, yeah. Okay, then is Santa Claus real? And she went, well, of course, honey. No, I mean, is there a fat man in a red suit that lives at the North Pole and he takes presents to every kid on the globe? And one night, is that really real? And he goes, oh, my gosh. Okay, listen, sweetie. Um, no, not exact. And he just starts sobbing. Ryan just starts sobbing and crying. And then Vicky starts sobbing, and she's crying. And as he's sobbing and crying, he looks up at her, and he said, well, I guess this, this just, just, just about d- d- does it for the e- Easter Bunny, too. And she said, yeah, it's not real either. Oh, I'm sorry. I even mentioned the Easter Bunny. Seriously. I didn't want to have to be the one. Tooth Fairy, absolutely real. In fact, the Tooth Fairy is real if he gives you $20 a tooth. Done. If you don't get $20 a tooth, it's a big sham and it's your parents. All right. There's a difference, guys, between a blind faith and an intelligent faith. A blind faith is Santa Claus. A blind faith is thinking Hercules was real. There is no reason to believe it. Now then, it's like if Brett was to go and get a, uh, a, a kit offline to build an airplane, and he builds an airplane, and he says, Jimmy, I love you so much, I want you to be the very first person to fly in this plane that I have constructed myself. We're going to take it up on top of Mount Bunnell, and I'm going to put you in it, and then I'm going to shove you off, and you're going to be the very first person to fly in my plane. If I got on that plane, it would be an act of faith, right, that I wouldn't die. And it would be a blind faith, because to my knowledge, the boy has never built anything that has stayed together longer than like five to ten minutes. So it would be crazy for me to get on it. However... If I got on a Southwest Airlines jet, that's also an act of faith, right? Because I'm going up 30,000 feet, and I have faith I'm not going to die. But is that a blind faith, or is it a reasonable, intelligent faith? Well, it's reasonable because, they, you know, they don't crash. It's safer than driving down Mopac. It's a reasonable faith. That's the difference with Christianity. There are intelligent reasons, y'all have been talking about some of them, to believe what we say we believe. It's not a blind faith, it's an intelligent faith. If, if you read the National Enquirer and it said that Hillary Clinton was giving birth to alien babies, then you might say, probably that's funny, but we don't really look to the National Enquirer for hard news. Uh, We don't look at it as being real. Now, if the Dallas Morning News said Hillary Clinton is spawning alien babies, then we might have to take a look at it. Because the Dallas Morning News, they print the facts that they know them. They're attempting 
to be real, factually correct. The difference than, say, the, the writings of the Hindus, when they say, you know, well, the world is perched upon the back of an elephant being spun by a purple monkey, no one thinks that this is factually true. It's parable for spiritual truths, but no one's even attesting that it's factually correct. But when the Bible says that Jesus walked into Capernaum, you know, it's saying, no, there's a guy named Jesus, and he literally walked into the town of Capernaum. It's, being, it's claiming to be factually correct. There's a difference between the Bible and many other religious books. Archaeology can prove that the Bible is accurate. Y'all probably already talked about it. Have y'all talked about archaeology? There is not. It's where you dig stuff up. If the study of archaeology, guys, and we're talking in the history of digging stuff up, they have never dug up anything that has contradicted or disproven one thing in the Bible. Now, come on, guys, seriously. Every time the Bible has said a town was where it was supposed to be, every, when Paul said the, the magistrate from, from Rome came to visit him, you can look up. In, in Roman historical documents, and that is the name of the Roman magistrate at the time Paul was in prison, it is factually accurate. The Bible has never, ever, ever shown not to be factually accurate. There was the longest time where academia, science, said that David never existed, that he was just a mythological figure in Israel's history, King David. And so they said, unless we can prove it, he didn't exist. And just about 15 years ago, they discovered all these artifacts that proved that David was an actual real live human being. They said that the Exodus never happened. It was mythology. And then they dug down years later, and they found a huge Jewish community uh, in Egypt that dates back to the exact time of the Exodus. The Bible proves the Bible's accuracy. It doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't prove it's true, but it proves it's accurate. Um, <clears throat> this is kind of where we are today. Smart, educated people don't believe in God. Dumb, uneducated people do believe in God. And y'all know that to be true. Everything that you see on television, no one makes fun of of some candidates for their religious beliefs, but you take a Ben Carson or a Ted Cruz or a Mike Huckabee, and they are just, they're ridiculed for what they say they believe. Because if you're smart and educated, you're tolerant and you're open-minded, uh, and you realize that God is just for those simple-minded people that want to cling to their guns and religion. And this paradigm has existed for a long, long time. <clears throat> There's a thing called the Jesus Seminar. And they are very, they're very famous. They're on the cover of Time Magazine every time they go to the restroom. And they did a color-coded Bible that said, if, if it's in blue, then Jesus actually said it or did it. If it's in red, he maybe said it or did it. If it's in black, he absolutely did not say it or do it. And they concluded that 82% of the New Testament is just false. It's just made up. It's just a story. And that is the way that most people that don't believe 
view our beliefs. Is that we just believe it because we want there to be a daddy upstairs giving us a hug when we die. That we, we, are, we are just hanging on to it um, for some of psychological reasons. Um, I, I, I had, have y'all ever heard of the book uh, Case for Christ by Lee Strobel? Anybody in here? It's a good one. It ought to be on your shelf. Uh, Dr. Habermas was interviewed by Strobel, and I had him for a doctoral seminar when I was in school. And he was taught, he has debated everybody. He's debated everybody. I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard of Richard Dawkins. Uh, he wrote The God Delusion. I mean, this, he's debated, he's, made, he's had academic debates at, at Oxford and Harvard and Yale and Stanford. And he's the guy known around the world is the guy that debates whether the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. That's what he does. He travels the globe taking on anybody who wants to debate him, and he will debate whether Jesus rose from the dead, whether that is historically accurate or not. So he was talking about, when we, in our class, he was talking about some of the things that he did when he won these debates and these points that he'd score, and I'll give him the Gospels, just give me Paul, give me the writings of Paul, and I'll just... And so he was, when he was done, there was a break. I went up to him and I said, Dr. Habermas, you've been talking about, you know, when you, were, when you won these debates, what you said or the points that you scored when you won. Well, when the other side won over these 30 years, what points did they score? What, what debating points did they use that were successful? And he looked at me and he said, I never lost and this is Oxford and Yale and Harvard and Stanford. And these debates are judged by a panel of professors, not a bunch of Christians with signs. He never lost an academically judged debate on whether the resurrection of Jesus historically happened. And he defeated some of the smartest men on the planet when he did that. Most of us, and I'm guys, I'm telling you, most of us in this room think that really smart people don't believe. And then the rest of us, because of the way we were raised or whatever, we believe. But guys, we do not, when we claim Christianity, we do not, we're not, in, we're not on inferior intellectual ground. Real quickly, there's a guy by the name of Anthony Flew. And he was probably, for his generation, before Richard Dawkins, the most famous atheist in the world. And he would go around and he would debate whether God existed or not in the same academic debates. And Dr. Flew, at age 83, changed from being an atheist to said, I now believe in God. At age 83. One of the, again, one of the smartest guys in the world. And he said, the more we know about genetics... The more we know about DNA, the more you have to believe there is design. And if there's design, ergo, there has to be a designer. And he uses the example, and y'all probably heard it, but you know, like me and my wife were walking down the beach, and there's a seaweed that just washes up on the sand, and it just randomly flops out in an H and an I. And I go, honey, would you look at that? That seaweed, it just washed up and spelled high. Take a picture. That's amazing. What are the odds? And then you just keep on walking, and then you see the seaweed that's just washed up on the beach, 
and it just randomly flops out in an H and an E and an L and an L and an O. And you go, good Lord, would you look at that? It just, it just randomly spelled out hello. I mean, what are the odds of that? And you just keep on walking. And then you get a little further down the beach, and you see the seaweed that just washed up. And it just randomly spells out four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth this continent, a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition all men are created equal. You go, honey, would you look at that? I mean, what are the odds? And there comes a point in time when you have to say, it takes more faith to believe that washed up and spelled that out by accident than someone took the seaweed and spelled it out. At, there comes a point in time where it takes more faith to believe that all this happened by accident than if it was designed by God. And that's where, that was where Anthony Flew came to. Um, I don't know if y'all remember this movie, The Da Vinci Code. It's pretty old. Have y'all seen it? Is any of you? Uh, great movie. I mean, anything Dan Brown writes, great, great book, great movie. Really horrible history. Just to, just to catch you up, and I'm gonna, this is going to be really tedious, but hang with me because I have no watch. I'll be done in just a second. In the Da Vinci Code, it basically says that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He swooned. And they took him down off the cross, not dead. He was just mostly dead. Prince's Bride, greatest movie ever. <laughs> and so he's, they, and he, they brought him back to life. And then he married Mary Magdalene that he'd been having a sexual affair with this entire time to start with. And their children became the, the royalty of Spain. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't know that? So... That's sort of the theory behind it. And in it, they said Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be God. Y'all are going to hear that. If you haven't heard it in your school, you're going to hear it when you get to college. Jesus never claimed to be God. He would turn over in his grave if he thought people considered him to be God. It was not till 200 years later when the church was trying to hang on to its power and its money that they concocted this story that Jesus was God. The disciples never thought he was God. They never taught he was God. He never claimed to be God. All that was added 200 years later. And they tell this story as though anyone with a brain knows this. Not the stupid Christians that sing the songs in the big buildings, but, I mean, people who really know history know that Jesus never claimed to be God. Okay, this is what is going to make... This is going to give you a headache, but please hang with me two minutes, I promise. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Paul says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day, and he appeared to Cephas and to 500 people. They're all still alive. Go ask them if you want to. So what Paul says is, what I received, I passed on to you. And what he received was, colon, that Christ died, he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and then he rose. So that's what Paul received. Now, this is where it gets really busy. Hang with me. When did he receive it? The road to Damascus was like a year after Christ died. And then after the road to Damascus, you will get theologians of the week if anybody knows where Paul went after the road to Damascus. Anybody? He went to the Arabian desert for three years. 
And after that, he goes to Jerusalem and he meets with the council and that's where Barnabas defends him and blah, 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 blah. And here you go. And you get the, the writing of the New Testament. So when did Paul receive this? Either during that three years in the Arabian desert where he communed with Jesus. So that would be one year after Christ died, three years, so four years. And then he went to Jerusalem. He could have received it when he got to Jerusalem. That's what they were teaching there. He would dispute that, but he could have received it then. But any, either way, they were teaching that Christ, just by using that word, Paul says, Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, God in human form, and that he died on a cross for the sins of the world, just like the Old Testament scriptures said he would, and he came back to life on the third day, just like the Old Testament scriptures said he would. They were teaching that within four years of Jesus' death and resurrection. Not 200, four. And four years is not enough time to develop mythology. Sorry, that bogged down. Okay, why is apologetics important? Because of this. If Jesus said, I'm God, if it's true, then he's God. If it's false and he really believed it, he was an idiot. Jesus was a loon. He was like, you know, someone in downtown Austin that wears a bikini bottoms and rides a bike and claims to be God. If he really thought he was God, he was a lunatic. Or if he was not sincere, if he lied about being God and he knew that he wasn't God, but he said he was, knowing full well he wasn't. Do you know how many millions of people have been butchered for this man? That would make Jesus the evilest person that ever lived. He would make Mr. Rogers look like Hitler. He would have been incredibly evil. If the Bible is true, then he's either God, a lunatic, or he's a liar. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If it's true, it's of infinite importance the only thing it cannot be is moderately important if the bible is true it makes a difference to every human alive if it's not true eat drink and be merry you're never going to argue anybody into heaven so when we talk about defending our faith you never argue about it um it just simply doesn't work that way. We're going to love people into heaven, but we're never going to win an argument about it. The Word of God, the Bible says that the Word of God is alive and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. That it's as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. Uh, some of you may know that I was... Uh, a youth minister for 20 years, and I was Brett's youth minister. And so in 1992, you've probably read about the Soviet Union. Uh, when the Soviet Union fell, it fell in, in, in January of 1992. In June of that year, we were allowed to be the very first Christian youth group into the former Soviet Union. And Brett was on that trip with me. And we were taking Bibles, and this is the first time. It's just, 
It's crazy. Think of North Korea today. That's what the Soviet Union was back in the, in the day during like the Cold War. And so as I went up and all the kids were there with their luggage and all that stuff, there were these three Soviet, they still had on Soviet uniforms with their Soviet machine guns over their shoulders. And I had the little piece of paper saying, you know, we're here, we're the guests of this church. And they looked at it and they conferred with each other. And then they come back and he looks, this young soldier looks at me and he said, you have Bibles? And inside I'm going, I thought it was okay. Now I'm going to go to a gulag. They're not going to see me for 34 years. I said, okay, all right, say yes, yeah, yeah, we have Bibles. He said, how many? Uh, Three, four thousand, give or take. (laughs) And they, they confer together again. And they turned back around and they looked at me. And these three Soviet soldiers, the, the Soviet soldiers said, you give us three? Hold that thought. I ran in the back, ripped open one of the bags, got out an armful, came over, put them on, and he just waved us through. And as we went, as we went through, I got the kids together. I said, yeah, yeah, shut up, turn around. Brett, you especially, shut up, look. (laughs) And we turned around and we looked, and there were these Soviet soldiers standing there reading the New Testament. And that night, I think all of us maybe understood the importance of what we had just seen. That maybe this was the very first time these young men had ever read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Guys, understanding why we believe the Bible is so critical because the Bible is true and it is alive and it is the word of truth and it's the source of life. And if we, if we really believe what we say we believe, then people have to know that. And even though they're going to challenge us, we've got to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's in us. You guys pray with me. Father, I want to thank you for every person in this room. I want to thank you for David and for Brett and for this church, for what they're doing, instilling the word of God in these kids. Father, our generation fumbled the ball. These kids are a minority in their own country. Father, I pray that you give them strength and wisdom. Father, I pray that you give them courage to live their faith out in a very hostile environment. Father, I pray that every person in this room, every home that's represented in this room would be a beacon of your light in the midst of a very dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.